0: Loved ones, I invite you to turn in your Bibles and find the Scripture passage we'll consider this morning from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Before we read that, let us pray and ask for the Spirit's help. Spirit of God, we ask now that you would anoint your lowly servant to speak with boldness according to the fruits of you, fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We also ask, O Spirit, that you would draw hearts of sinners to your love and to allegiance with Christ by faith. Do this work powerfully among us by Your word and spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, loved ones, hear God's word from Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, how often have you gone out of the way to help lift someone up in their desperate situation, in their need? How often have you inconvenienced yourself in order to comfort someone who is mourning, is in sorrow and grief or suffering? How often have you truly loved others more than yourself? The moment that we actually do such acts of love are few and far between in our life. Why? Well, because our hearts are still so cold and selfish, self centered. By comparison, we see the act of God's arrival in human flesh. Here is the incarnation of God, and it shows us the very heart of God for us. The Son of God did not think that coming in our humanity to save us was below him. He did not think that. He was drawn out of his glorious abode in heaven to be born in the squalor of earth, all for love's sake. No one, no one has ever stooped so low in order to help and save, redeem people like you and like me. You see, God didn't give up on his humanity in all its mess. In Christian, that also means particularly and personally for you that God will never give up on you in all of your mess. We see here that The Christmas story that we've been learning about, that we've been studying again this season, is all about how the lofty Lord of glory was willing to be humbled in our human nature in order to lift up sinners by his grace and love. The Holy One was willing to be desecrated in our place in order to restore humanity to its former sacred status as image bearers of God. To reflect his glory again and in the text before us that we just read we see this child born of lowly birth who is in fact the king of all the earth to whom we owe our wholehearted allegiance and our utmost respect with our whole hearts our whole bodies our own worship and to see this we will consider three things this morning in this text First, the decree, secondly, the descent, and thirdly, the desecration. First, the decree. Well, Luke, he tells us here, as he's setting the stage, that Caesar Augustus had issued a decree that a census should be taken for the entire Roman world. He's setting the backdrop of this story for us, the setting. He's showing us how destitute and denigrated Israel had become. God's people, when Christ arrived. The Israelites, God's chosen pre- people, had practically lost all of their, their glory, all of their luster. They are kind of like this grand, majestic piano that was now found completely out of tune. They had no real freedom. They had no real status in the world. No king on David's throne. They were ruled by other nations, the Gentiles. Even though they were in the promised land, they were as if subjects again of Pharaoh, longing for deliverance and freedom. The time of Jesus' arrival, the nation that was chosen by God to be the light of the world, the light of the nations, was like a dead star that had burnt up all of its fuel and was left just a collapsed core, Israel, a remnant, waiting in the darkness And there they were in the darkness and they lived under the decrees of pagan rulers like the Roman Emperor Caesar and the governor of Syria that is mentioned here, Quirinius. And this image of Israel, Israel, God's chosen people, and her faded glory is for us a picture of all of humanity, a picture even of us personally. We have sinned, all of us, and fallen short of the glory of God. We who were created to reflect the brilliance of God's glory are now like dead stars, black holes of sin and death. Even still, this sad state, this sad state of humanity, did not keep God from coming to us according to his plan of love. Luke tells us that Caesar's decree went out into the whole known world at that time this worldwide decree. You know, Caesar, as he's issuing these kinds of decrees 2,000 years ago, probably thought very much of himself, thought he was great and powerful. He had the power and authority to issue these worldwide decrees that would force people like Joseph and Mary to get up and move at his command for the purpose of taxation, to get money from these people. And Caesar, he thought he was great. With these kind of decrees, but in reality, this pagan emperor of Rome who forced people to call him Lord was in fact a mere pawn of the Lord of Lords himself. Luke wants us to see that. He wants us to see here in this text the providence of God at work. This decree was no coincidence or happenstance. The decree of Caesar that was issued was in fulfillment of the decree which came from a higher authority the decree of the creator himself. You see, God used the proud and sinful decree of Caesar to fulfill his own plans and bring to this world the glory of his son. And in that way, Luke wants us to see that the dark injustices and the evil that exists in this world through sinful men, that doesn't stop God at all. That doesn't hinder him in what he wants to do. As Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so we we can understand this passage and what's happening here is that this decree came out of Caesar's mouth and it came into effect, right? Like water being poured out of a can by a gardener. Imagine that, pouring it out exactly where the gardener wants it. And so Caesar's own desires were Directed exactly according to how the Creator wanted them to go. Exactly according to how God had previously decreed. And what this means, loved ones, for us, personally, practically, is that no ruler or person can hinder God from doing what he has planned to do and purposed. And that includes you, even. Think of that. You and your mistakes, you and your sinfulness can't keep God from making much of Jesus Christ and saving sinners. Christian, remember that nothing can get in the way of God saving you if you belong to him by faith. Even your own mistakes and your own failures, you cannot get in the way of God and his sovereign plan of salvation. And so we see that God, his decree is behind and above this decree that comes from Caesar. But what exactly was God's decree here? He had a decree that his son would be born in a very specific way. God orchestrated all of these events according to that precise plan of his. We can think of God's decree as sort of God the Father's birth plan for his own son, his only begotten son. Birth plan. You know, doctors, they recommend that new parents should write up a birth plan, which is a kind of outline of their preferences for how the labor and delivery will go. Birth plans, they lay out where you want to give birth, so the exact place, whether that's at home, in a in a bathtub, right? Or in a birthing center or at a hospital. And then also the birth plan will you'll have to consider the best route to get there. And the things that you want in that room, like the music playing softly in the background, or the essential oils uh, to Fill the room with sweet smells for that birth experience. And so naturally, in these birth plans for us, uh, we try to make it as comfortable, as safe, as clean, and enjoyable as possible. So what was God's birth plan for his own son that we find here in this text? Well, God knew the place. What was the place? Think of it in this way. The place is the parking structure of a low-class motel inn in the small city of Bethlehem. What do I mean? Well, every traveler who was staying in the inn there in Bethlehem, well, they parked their rides there, right? They tied up their animals in the stable. This was the parking lot, the ancient version of a parking lot. That's the place where God's own son would be born. Not in a palace with a team of private doctors, ensuring success in an optimal birth experience no bed no crib you know Mary probably gave birth lying down on a slab of stone there in the stable that was the place God knew the route he knew how to get there he got Mary the mother of our Lord to the place of his birth by way of Caesar's census God knew that Joseph would have to travel back to his family's hometown in Bethlehem, and this was to fulfill the prophecy in Micah 5:2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So God knew how to get Mary there by way of this census from Caesar. And God also knew the sounds and the smells that he wanted there in the birthplace. You know, for our second little son, Judah, who was born to us, my family, we took an essential oil diffuser and used the delightful smells of clary sage, uh, that essential oil, which still, when we smell it, kind of puts me back in that room, a delivery room where he was born. Well, God, the Father here, he picked a thick stench of animals in the air for the birthing place of his son, the Messiah, God and human flesh. Now, why? Why was God's birth plan so modest, so scandalous, right? Any doctor today uh, would strongly recommend to parents a different birth plan if they suggested that and laid it out on a paper. This is what I want for my son, Right? They might even report such parents to authorities at the outrageous kind of plan and details of it. So why then did God the Father plan the birth of Christ in this way? It was to show us how low God needed to go in order to save us from our low state. God himself had to hit rock bottom in order to scrape us up from the bottom of the barrel the bottom of our sinful plight. And he was willing to do so. He was willing to make the descent into such squalor for us out of love. And that brings us to our second point, the descent, the descent. This was a great descent of love, descent from glory down to earth. Luke tells us that Jesus, he was wrapped up and placed in a manger because there was no guest room available for them in the inn. You know, we all know that if you see an elderly person or a pregnant lady, right, you're supposed to help them walk across the street or open the door for them or give up your seat for them if you're on the bus or in in a plane or, or waiting somewhere. This is common decency that we expect from one another. Yet humanity did not even show the mother of our Lord nor the Son of God himself such decency. Nobody gave up the room in that inn for this nine-month-old pregnant girl. And as far as we know, nobody got out of their way to help her give birth. There was no midwife. Nobody seemed to care. Years before, the prophet Isaiah said that the Christ would be despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. And we see that clearly here from the very outset of his arrival. Even at his birth, we see that we did not receive him in honor as he deserved. Instead, we ignored him. We were in a sense ashamed of him, even from birth. You think about this, at birth, King Jesus, the King of Kings, was not met with the celebratory smiles and cheers from family members standing by. No, instead he was met with the braying hee has of donkeys. He came not in the comfort of a sanitized room with a midwife tending to both mama and baby, but rather he came in a stinky stable shared with beasts of burden. No red carpet, Nor flowers were laid out upon the floor to honor the birth of the king of kings. Instead, the flooring below them was soiled with animal droppings. This is how God chose to show up in love for us. This was his grand entrance into human history. I was thinking about this. The musicians... That, choose, or that are chosen to play for the Super Bowl halftime show, which are very few among all of the mu- musicians of the world, this great massive event, they get about six months to prepare for their grand entrance. And for example, Madonna, she arrived on a giant throne during her halftime show, asserting herself as pop royalty. Lady Gaga, not too long ago, flew into the stadium swinging on wires, Michael Jackson opened up his Super Bowl halftime show by creating this illusion as if he teleported from one place to another, and then he asserted his, his kind of glory, in a sense, by standing in place, just strangely standing in place like a statue for literally almost two minutes while people just cheered him on. These grand entrances that these musicians, music, uh, sorry, these enter- entertainers and musicians planned for months in order to get it just right, to make much of themselves, to be epic, to be glorious. Now by comparison, the Lord our God, he had thousands of years to plan for his grand entrance. In fact, he had all of eternity to plan for it. And after all of that time, God chose this dingy place in a dull little backwater town for his grand entrance. Why did God not arrive in greater glory? Ah, well, that's our problem, right? We assume that big entertaining shows is what glory looks like. But God shows us what true glory is here with his arrival. True glory, his humble love, his sacrificial love for us. That is true glory that the world does not know. And here we see the glory of God's humble love for us, sacrificing his own comfort for our good, for our redemption. I want to read this from Ambrose of Milan, a pastor from the 4th century, so 1,600 years ago. This is how he preached this passage. He says this, God has come to take upon himself the sins of the world, to abolish the defilement of sin and and death itself in him. He was therefore little, He was a child, that you might become a complete man. He was wrapped in swaddling cloths, so that you might be free from the bonds of death. He in the manger to place you at his heavenly table. He on earth for you to be among the stars. He had no other place in this rural inn for travelers, so that you would have a mansion in heaven. He who was rich became poor for you, so that his poverty would enrich you. It is therefore my heritage that this poverty and the weakness of my Lord is my strength. I am therefore, Lord Jesus, more indebted to your suffering for my redemption than to your works of my creation. For to be born would have served me nothing without the benefit of redemption. You see, Ambrose was leaning into the reality of What Christ had done for us, his great descent, which was necessary for our redemption. This was Christ's descent into a life of suffering in order to redeem us. This lowly birth that we're considering at Christmas time was just the beginning of his descent in actuality. Because he would go even lower all the way till death by crucifixion on a Roman cross. We see that Christ came and offered up his whole self in order to make us whole again. He laid down his life in order to give us life. And some of the earliest commentators and preachers on this passage, they pick up something somewhat poetic here in the passage. Jesus was laid in a manger. Manger. You know, when I hear that word, I almost think of it as an ancient term for a crib or for a bed but this was no crib for a newborn baby. Mangers, mangers, I want you to picture this. Mangers were the places where animals found their food, the trough, the feeder container, usually made out of stone. And so God had his son laid down in the place where lowly beast would eat for nourishment. Now on this point, Cyril of the 5th century, he writes this, God found man reduced to the level of beast therefore the son is placed like fodder in a manger that we who were brutish in soul by now approaching the manger even his own table we find no longer fodder but the bread from heaven which is the body of life and so Augustine, St. Augustine, says that there in the manger laid the true nourishment that we all need in order to be fully ourselves again, to restore to us true life, to restore humanity back to the glory that we once had as image bearers. What's poetic about all that? What town was Jesus born in? The town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which in Hebrew literally means the house of bread. In a sense, we find God saying here, I'm sending my own son as food for you to redeem and restore you to life again through his poverty, through his sacrifice. Here in the manger, find the bread of life for you, given for you to nourish your souls back to true life. So we see the humble descent of the son of God for sinners like us, as the hymn says Christ our God to earth descending comes our homage to command. King of kings yet born of Mary as of old on earth he stood. Lord of lords in human likeness in the body and the blood he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. And we see that even here his own birth, the very beginning laid out as a gift, as an offering as food for us. And that leads us to our last point, the desecration. Now, if you travel to Israel today, you can visit the Church of the Nativity. It's one of the oldest, the most ancient Christian cathedrals that still exists today. It was built in 325 at the supposed location where Jesus was actually born, there in Bethlehem. And you can even now reach down to this hole in the cathedral, in the basilica, and touch a stone slab that supposedly was the very stone that Mary gave birth to Christ upon. And interestingly, there in this basilica, in this great cathedral, three Christian groups, they co-own and use this basilica for their services. The Greek Orthodox, Armenians, and also the Roman Catholics. So three different groups, worshiping and owning the same space. You can just imagine how that might go, right? And because they believe that this space, this this location is so sacred, sacred, something phenomenal had happened there, they believe. Because of that, they actually break out often in fights, and the authorities have to come and break up the fights among the priests, and we laugh at that. We think it's sad and it's true. It's inconsistent with Christian virtues of love and, and unity and peace. But what is sadder, think of this, is a whole society that has tried to remove the concept of sacred, that has tried to erase the sacred What is worse is an entire culture slipping away from holding on to things that once we call the sacred and instead profaning what was and still is sacred by our actions, by our words. And this is the society that we live in today. And it's the societal degradation that Paul talks about in Romans 1, 26 to 27, where he says, therefore God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, so no longer holding our bodies as sacred in a sense. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So instead of worshiping the creator who is sacred, who is holy, we now take created things and we worship those things. And we could spend hours upon hours considering all the ways in which our society has profaned the holy. How we have desecrated that which should be upheld as sacred. This is what we did to Christ, is it not? The Son of God, the Holy One. The Christmas story is about God himself, the Holy One, entering into human history, entering into our world polluted by sin. And what for? Why would a holy God set foot in a profaned world? Well, the Son of God, loved ones, came willingly to be desecrated by us on the cross. Why? In order to restore humanity to its sacred status by union with God. By faith in him, the Holy One called Jesus was profaned on the cross in order to make us holy in him. The majestic king of glory came as a poor peasant boy in order to remake us as royals, sons and daughters of the king of kings. Despite our sins that have so profaned the sacred, God's sacred love pardons sinners. And makes us holy in him. And that's what Christmas is all about. God's willingness to come in humility for us. So that we might now go to him in glory. From his birth we see that God. From his birth was embracing our shame and our filth. In order to lift us up from that. As Paul said we have exchanged the truth for a lie. And worshiped the creation instead of the creator. Nevertheless we see In the Christmas story, but most especially on the cross, that the Holy One, the Holy One himself exchanged his own body for wretches like us to see us forgiven, to see us renewed, and to see us finally glorified in him. And here is the heart of God for us in the Christmas story. His humble love, God's own son wrapped in swaddling cloths and placed in a manger, later to be nailed on the cross in order to give us life and to restore us again back to the glory that we once had as image bearers of god so loved ones as we continue in this advent season thinking of the birth of christ believe in him trust in his great love and humility and he will redeem you and he will restore you to glory through his death and his resurrection amen let us pray We thank you, Father God, for your eternal decree that you set forth in human history and you used pawns and agents like Caesar to make it all happen according to your perfect plan, your plan of humility and love to send your own son descending down into the filth and squalor of our polluted worlds to be desecrated on the cross for us so that we might be by your grace lifted up in him to your glory and all to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, we ask that this, the reality of your love for us would change us to the core, that you would draw us in love, woo us in love towards you this morning, that we might honor you not just with our lips but with our hearts, our whole selves, for you have given us from heaven the bread of life. So, Lord, we ask you would nourish us and strengthen us until we arrive in glory with him. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, loved ones,